Welcome back to the non-standard 14er podcast, the podcast that talks about everything the route description leaves out about hiking Colorado's 14ers. We're doing another Zoom podcast. We got uh, Walk Mode Patrick joining us. His nickname changes every every podcast. We, I think we're calling him Walk Mode Patrick since he uh, tried to ski Democrat this year in, in Walk Mode and with his skis. Oh, wow. I'll be WMP for this episode. <laughs> Beside me is the Tornado Man rejoining the podcast. Yo, what's up? And our guest today is a 14er finisher. He is a centennial finisher. He's climbed all the 50 high points in the States, which means he's climbed Denali, Rainier, Gannett Peak. He's also a CMC guide, and he's uh, kind of the organizer and, and, and the knowledge person and guide on the winter welcomer. So we're welcoming Britt Jones to the podcast. Some people might know his 14er handle as uh, Globe Real. Howdy ho. Hi, guys. So, Britt, tell us the uh, impetus and, 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 the, and the beginning of the Winter Welcomer. What is the Winter Welcomer and how did it, how did it come about? The Winter Welcomer actually started um, when Jim Dinopoli asked Steve Gladbach if he would help him climb a peak in the winterish seasons. And it wasn't quite calendar winter yet. And um, the two of them linked up and um, I don't remember exactly if it was the first year if it was just the two of them or if it was all the guys that I sent you uh, in that photo that you just looked at um, that Jim took a picture of so it might have been the first year I think it could have been all five of those guys and that was 12 years ago this is the 12th year so yeah the first year Steve Gladbach took out Jim Dinopoli and possibly those other uh, three or four guys. And then what happened was um, Jim Dinopoli loved it so much, he came back the next year and then put it on 14ers.com as the winner welcomer. So that's where the name came from. Jim Dinopoli was the one that started it. And unfortunately, uh, when Bill Middlebrook did some server changes and upgrades and system uh, modifications some stuff got weeded out and all those past trip reports and threads got deleted unfortunately but we used to go back and be able to look at them all and it was a lot of fun watching all the the years of fun on the on quandary and so when did it change to a halloween inspired 100 <laughs> people in costumes uh well it just kind of morphed uh, when when Steve and Jim did the first one. It happened to be right around um, Halloween. It was in October, and then Jim came back the next year and the next year and kept putting it up in October. And it always happened to be right around the time of Halloween, and often that Saturday, either you know right before or after Halloween, and so it just became a natural hey, bring a costume. And, you know, some people have one from parties they're going to at work and whatnot. And, and it just became a hoot seeing all the things that people would wear up on a mountain. And so we just have had a blast doing this every year. Is there a rendezvous time, like at the summit? Is, that, is there like a goal? Yeah, um, this year is going to be a little different with COVID-19 lurking still. So, um, we're not advertising a specific start time and or anticipatory meet on the summit uh, to try to keep 
some sort of semblance of social distancing. So, um, but in the past, yeah, we would almost always start right at 8 a.m. for those that were in the main pack and at the kind of common hiking speed. And uh, then we would all plan to be on the summit. It was usually around 1130-ish to 12. And yeah, we've had some years where it was close to that 100 being up there. I, I've counted uh, personally 85 people on that mountain and ridge going up and down. Now, of course, you can't get everybody at one time on the summit because it is fluid with the speeds of people coming up and down. But we've had a, I remember a photo that Ryan Richardson had his nice DSLR and we probably had 40 plus people in the picture. Thankfully, it's not a wilderness area. <laughs> That's true. But Tornado Man, yeah, he was up there last last year. Awesome. Yep, it was pretty windy up there. I think I saw you right at the trailhead after for a, a second. Yeah, no, we had a great uh, tailgate party last year. <clears throat> that was part of the theme that we've established uh, over the past several years is get back to the parking lot, and we call it a tailgate party, and so we would bring grills, um, which was a tradition or a thing that happened, oh, maybe four or five years ago. Um, uh, who was it? Ben and, uh, oh, I can't remember their names, who, who they were, but they brought grills and cooked brats, and then they were sharing them with people. So we just kind of picked up and stole what they had done and made that a tradition. And so for the last several years, we've had a big tailgate party where a lot of people would hang out afterwards and throw back some suds and cook some uh, brats or burgers. And, and we had people bring all stuff like a pot luck, all kind of goodies. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. And you were the or origin or the first post on the winter welcomer 12th annual winter welcomer on the forum, 14ers.com forum. And you had some like words about how it's an invitation to people who don't have never done maybe some winter stuff, some late stuff, don't have any avalanche training. It's a great way to meet people, even if they're first time people that aren't, they don't really know the community. Yes, that has become the desire. And that came out of me getting to know Steve Gladbach and what kind of person he is. So rewind a little bit. When Steve first started, he took Jim Dinopoli out because Jim didn't have any winter mountaineering experience. And so he wanted somebody to go with him that knew what they were doing. And so Jim learned starting from Steve about winter mountaineering. And then I actually took Jim out a, a year or two after that uh, and we did a snow mass climb and uh, cramponed up uh, the North Ridge of snow mass. And uh, anyway, that's kind of what became this event is how can we do like Steve Gladbach and do a handout, not a handout, but a hand back and lift up people, especially those that are new to mountaineering, but even more so those that are new to winter mountaineering, because we have a lot of people that move to the state every year and they see people going out and they want to, you know, join in with their friends. But a lot of times people don't know what they don't know. And so that was me actually for quite a few years when I first got in, got started 
is I didn't have a clue about avalanches. Because <laughs> I, I would come up here in the wintertime. I was from out of state and would go snow skiing and never once thought about avalanche danger. Through all my years of skiing, 40 years of snow skiing, well, not that many, but you get the idea when I first started. And then getting into mountaineering, my first few years of mountaineering, I didn't know anything about avalanche danger. And then once I started getting educated, educated in the mountaineering world, that is something that I really want to help people that may not know what they don't know, become educated and be smart about going out in the Colorado backcountry, not just in calendar winter, but anytime there's snow, you've got potential dangers. And you've done some videos, right, in honor of Steve Gladback, some Leave No Trace and Avalanche Awareness and 14er Etiquette. And Yes, after Steve passed away, um, Nona Gladbach had, I don't know if she wants me to say this or not, but she had contributed to what was called the Steve Gladbach Memorial Fund at the CMC, the Colorado Mountain Club. Steve was a lifetime member with the CMC. And Steve learned a lot of his skills through that and then um, did the same of helping people learn those skills. And so in light of um, that memorial fund, and since I had become a CMC member and had you know, met a lot of people in the club, offered my video production skills, that's what I do for a living, that's where my name, 14er's name comes from. It's short for my business name, which is Global Reality. So that's how I got Globe Real. So uh, anyway, those videos were produced. Um, I offered to the CMC that I would basically do it for, you know, more than half price at a super cut rate to help them get made. Um, and so we did five videos through utilizing some of the money from the CMC's Steve Gladbach Memorial Fund. And in fact, I'll go ahead and, and mention, I just posted them today, th those three that you mentioned on the Winter Welcomer, uh, uh, Winter Welcomer thread. And Mongoose, uh, Nick was on one of those, right? He was a, he's been a guest on the podcast. Yeah, Nick Genestas, he's just a hoop, man. He's a, he is, <laughs> him and, uh, uh, Jim Skirmerhorn uh, were the ones that helped me with them, and they were the actors. and And between the three of us, we would come up with a, a script and a concept, and then is that semi true? Sorry, is is his, what's his handle? Semi is that semi true? Yes, okay. semi true skirm. I think it was. Yeah. Okay. And um, Jim had a background in TV news, just like I did. And so um, he had production experience. And so we wanted to make some videos that were at least had some sort of entertainment value, but educational in nature. So they were fun to work with and make some crazy antics. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't seen those videos. I'm checking it out, but I'm, I'm curious the, the winter welcomer. I've always, I've always heard about it from the last, you know, decade or so that, you know, I've paid attention on the 14ers.com uh, website. Um, so do you see, where do you see it going? Do you see that, you know, this, the winter welcomer, is, as you mentioned, is getting 
uh, larger every year. Uh, COVID, of course, is going to play its, its part in this one. But um, have you thought about moving to a different location where maybe there's multiple summits where you could, you know, Kite Lake and then some people go up Democrats, some people go up Ross. Have you ever tried, thought about doing that or doing multiple mountains? Um, where do you see it going in the future? Well, there, there are multiple mountains involved this year okay. due to COVID. So uh, Brad McQueen, uh, B. McQueen, is going to lead a group up North Star. And I'm going to take a group around the backside and come up the West Ridge of Quandary. And uh, that's intentional for spreading out for COVID. Um, but the tradition has been, this is where Steve Gladbach and Jim Dinopoli did their first climb was on Quandry. And one of the reasons we have stuck there um, is not only for that reason, but it's almost 100% avalanche safe. There's one little section there right at tree line that um, could slide and has a little AVI potential. But the majority of that whole ridge is windblown and a low under, you know, 30 degree slope angle. So it's someplace that we can bring people that are new to this, um, help them learn and keep them safe at the same time. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Do you have a lot of uh, people through the years that have, have you guided up on this one or welcome or that will end up showing up and maybe some of your other uh, courses at CMC? Uh, have you seen, have, do a lot of these people go get their airy, you know, one or companion rescue or do they go further into mountaineering? Have you, have you seen some of these people show up in other areas at CMC? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, cool. yeah, this mountaineering community is, uh, pretty fun to be a part of and so there's a cross-pollination between the CMC, the 14ers.com, the 14ers uh, Facebook group and and there and then we had several other events. There's been the spring gathering and the fall gathering and the winter gathering and the, boy just went the uh, happy hours. There's been quite a few of those where people would get together in the cities and uh, go have a beer together. And so, yeah, people mix and match and come and go from all of these various avenues. What do you, what do you say to someone who's like, you know, getting into it, doesn't have a partner, maybe he's an introvert, maybe he's intimidated by walking up to a campfire with 20 people that they don't know that are pretty well first and 14ers. How do you, how do you get like welcome them in or get them started? Well, and that's the, the point and the intention of the, posting it on 14ers.com is so that people will hopefully um, link up, not come alone. And not only I would say for social events, but don't come alone on climbs. And that's something that's part of what we want to teach people is I'm a big advocate about not going solo. Have I done it? Yes. Um, but one of the reasons I don't is my wife has intentionally asked me not to. So very rarely will I go solo if I can find a partner. And um, oftentimes I won't go if I don't have one. But that's the point that um, I really want to encourage people is 
one, make friends. You get, you know, more out of life when you're doing things with a group of, you know, fun-loving, like-minded individuals, for one. But the safety aspect is just this month here in October, we've had three people die on our mountains that were solo. Now, would their accidents not have happened if they had partners? Very likely not. But um, as you know from, you know, Ben Brownlee and Ken May and Joy Cipolletti, they're finding them in the backcountry took several days for some of them. And so while going with partners may not save your life, um, it certainly will save the search and rescue many, many days of having to do that backcountry searching. So I'm a big, big advocate of not going solo. And let's just flesh that out a little bit. Here's one of the ideas too. If, um, if you're solo, even if you have a spot or a Garmin inReach, some sort of satellite notification device, if you're knocked unconscious, you can't use it. So how is that gonna help you? If you got a partner, you know, if you were knocked unconscious, but it wasn't a fatal injury, then you could have your life saved saved right there because you've got a partner that can initiate a rescue and get you help. And then of course the other idea is if you've got partners and something happens, I've had this many times where, you know, somebody loses a piece of gear. You know, you can be up on a, a high ridge or a windy mountain and say your mittens get blown down the slope and now you don't have you know, a way to keep your hands warm. If that was your only pair, your partner may have them and they may prevent you from getting frostbite. And just use that illustration with any kind of piece of, you know, gear or help you can get from a partner. I know I bugged uh, Pat for batteries a bunch of times. We were all like 30 <laughs> steps from the car on longs. And I was like, Pat, my batteries are tight. I always, I always you know what, I, I grew up a Boy Scout, so I always, I always have this stuff. But, um, you know, I, I, I really agree there. And I've, I've climbed a lot solo in my youth. And then the older I got, of course, in the same boat as you, that my wife didn't really ask me. She told me I wasn't going alone anymore. But um, I do have an in-reach. Uh, but it, it is not a substitute for a climbing partner. And um, aside from the safety, safety reasons, you know, some of the, you know, your climbing partners end up being some of your, you know, most trusted and best friends throughout your life. So it's mm -hmm. always recommend to meet somebody, go. Yeah, those times alone, that solitude that you get when you're solo hiking is is pretty incredible. Um, but it's it's not a replacement for for going out and, and and having somebody there nearby that, you know, in an emergency or even just in fun, it's it's, it's always better to have a secondary uh, partner. I agree with that. Right. I agree. We, uh, I had a discussion with a couple friends. Um, there were three of us this year on a, on a peak and we were actually talking about group size. Um, like I do, um, the size of the group, how many people. Okay. And we seemed to think it was three, maybe three to four. Um, because three, if there was an accident, 
someone could stay with the person while someone else went for help or maybe four because you could split up into two groups of two in that scenario. You know, I, I usually go with, you know, most often I go with my wife. So usually it's two of us, but I've been in very, uh, you know, various group sizes. Do you have any opinions on that or? I have had really large groups, you know, well over a dozen on hikes and climbs and events and of course down to just two, a lot of those. Um, for the CMC protocol is that the hike or the climb or the trip isn't an official CMC outing unless you have four or more people. And it's for that very reason that if something happens to somebody, the injured party is never left alone. And the person that has to say, go for help, they don't go alone. So you've always got a partner. So that's their CMC's rule, and it makes sense. Now, I've done, you know, every end of the gamut from solo to a big, giant group, and there's um, good points and bad points on group size. If you have a, a big group and the goal is to stay together, then you're only – as fast as the slowest person. So you're only strong as the weakest link, so to speak. Um, but you could split the group up. Um, and I've done that often and taken those uh, FRS radios and communicated with other groups with a little radio device. And that works great is if you want to split up. So there's ways to manage various group sizes. If you just uh, think about it and, Try to be smart. But does, does group size change if you're doing grays versus little bear? <laughs> doing class three, class four, rock danger routes versus, you know, walk-ups? If you're doing uh, grays on a Saturday in the summer, your group size is going to be about 200. <laughs> <laughs> Might be 800 now. <laughs> and uh, if you do little bear, yeah, that, uh, that's a whole different group size. And um, – but yeah, I, if I'm doing a little bear, I'm doing it middle of the week and I'm going to be the first one up through the hourglass. That's for sure. <laughs> hey, something I wanted to mention earlier, um, you know, we have a lot of new people that are new to mountaineering and they don't know what they don't know. And so um, one of the main reasons of putting this on every year is to get people to come try using their gear, using their whatever systems they use so they can learn. So what better place than on a ridge that's going to have several other people on it. So if something goes awry, you've got other people that you can reach out, you know, for help with. And so um, with that idea, you know, we encourage people to come out and try bringing your camel back and learn how your hose is going to freeze. <laughs> you know, what better place to have that happen than on Quandary when there's a bunch of people and, and a lot of people don't know that, that their camelback tube is going to, you know, freeze. And so they'll hopefully try it and figure out a methodology that can work for them. I use an analgene bottle in an insulator or stuffing your water down in your pack and um, keeping it, so it doesn't freeze starting off with it 
you know, as uh, boiled water. So it's hot to begin with. And then, um, you know, burying it in layers in your pack. So uh, we want people to come and try this winter welcomer so they can learn some of these things. And then layers, you know, are your gloves warm enough? If you're going to be going out in the middle of winter, it's a whole different animal than going to the ski resort where you can go inside at lunch and warm up. You know, if you're in the back country way back in the Sawatch range, you know, you're not going to have that ability to go get in out of the weather, um, you know, unless you're climbing Pikes Peak and <laughs> the house is open, you can use that. But, but you get the idea. There's no donut shop on the top of Quandary? Uh, not unless you're uh, doing a drive-through on the way. <laughs> Hit Dunkin' Donuts as you're driving. Slated, slated for 2040. <laughs> yes, there you go. Except <laughs> for Starbucks on a sum, it sure would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, you curse, you curse about it when you're here, but when you get there, you'd be like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take it. One more thing I'd like to point out, and I try to encourage people to think about, and that is, on every climb, do you have with you what you need to survive a night out? A lot of people have this, you know, light and fast mentality. And yeah, there's times for that. And I think that's perfectly fine in the warmest days of the summer. Sure, you can go with not a whole lot of stuff. But here's the thing I want to point out in people, and I'd like people to learn that are new, is even in the middle of summer, the warmest days of the year, if you break your ankle at 13,000 feet and you're above tree line, and say an afternoon storm comes in, and you get rained on and say you haven't learned the no cotton rule yet. And if you have a hoodie on or blue jeans, now you get rained on, those clothes are going to be wet for three days. You're not going to dry out. And of course, you guys know, but a lot of newbies don't. If it's below, um, you know, if the sun has already gone down, then there's a good chance you are going to freeze to death before morning if you don't have what you need to get out of wet layers and then stop the wind. Because think about it, you guys know this, if you're sitting still, it does not take long for you to get cold, even in summer. So do you have on you what you need to survive an unexpected night out? So that's kind of one of my mantras that I try to help yeah, people. Yeah, well learn. said. Does that mean an extra pair of wool socks, emergency blanket or emergency bivy? extra down you can do all those um really pretty lightweight if you want an emergency bivy can be a hefty trash bag so if you're getting a big giant rainstorm and your shell is starting to lose its water of you know repellency a trash bag instant waterproof ex instant windproof so i always have a big hefty trash bag in my pack huh. it weighs virtually nothing and then, yeah, the socks, um, I always have an extra pair of wool socks just because I learned from a podiatrist that blisters are caused because of wet feet. So your skin gets soft, and that's what causes the blisters. So if you can, like if uh, I've done this a lot where I'll climb to a summit, and then I'll change my socks out on uh, before I go down. Now I got perfectly dry feet and perfectly dry socks. 
and then I don't get that rubbing and, and blisters. So taking extra stuff, it's a great idea. So I think uh, you raise a good point, especially about the, you know, the temperatures overnight at 13,000 feet, even in the summer, are going to be cold, you know, maybe 30s. Um, certainly can be below freezing. Yep. Um, I read a book that was about accidents on uh, deaths on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. And of course, it's a much more, it's a wetter climate up there. Mm -hmm. um, very windy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an area that is actually alpine peaks. Most of the peaks are below tree line in the northeast, but those are alpine peaks. And so many of the deaths up there, uh, the majority were hypothermia, um, with people caught in like rain and sleet with terrible winds and 35 degrees, you know, wearing a, a cotton hoodie and a pair of jeans and uh, the visibility went to nothing. They had no shelter. Um, they just didn't survive the night. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, a good point that that can certainly happen um, out here as well, especially if something goes wrong. Um, it does happen. And so. I don't know if you, um, this may have been before you guys got into 14ers, but several years ago, there was a guy on Princeton, middle of summer, and he got hit by a big wind gust and it blew him over. And then he jumped up and then said, holy, you know, whatever, and <laughs> took off down the hill to get off the mountain. Well, he didn't realize he had gone down the wrong ridge from what he went up. Mm. But in his mind, he was going down the ridge he came up. So before he knew it, he cliffed out, and now he's stuck, and it gets dark, and he spends the night. and. The next day, he tries to get off that mountain, being sure he's going the right direction, and keeps make he digs himself even deeper. Spends a second night out. Huh. He almost died of hypothermia. Mm -hmm. He literally will tell you that. And so it can happen to anybody, and it can happen unexpectedly. And you know, with a few things in his pack, he could have made that overnight at least much more manageable if say he had a trash bag to block the wind and um, some of the things that you need to survive. That's one of your videos, right? You, you did a uh, 10 essentials video. 10 essentials is one of them. Correct. 10 essentials, avalanche awareness, navigation, leave no trace. And the very first one was, who was Steve Gladbach? So those are the five CMC videos that we made about this winter welcomer idea, but leave no trace is a good idea. And uh, it's uh, something that I wish even mountaineers took a little greater than um, some do. And what I mean by that is, um, well, there's several tenets to the leave no trace, but the one that I'll talk about is the toilet paper idea. And <laughs> people will bury it, but if you've ever been at Lake Como in the summer, you see those uh, pieces of toilet paper all over around that camp, and that's because the you know critters will dig it up. And so um, 
my recommendation is just put your toilet paper back in the tube of your toilet paper roll and stuff it back in your Ziploc and then just throw it away when you get home. And that way there's never any toilet paper left in the backcountry ever. There's no reason to when it's that easy. You just stuff it back in that roll and then it dries and then you just, I just push it out into the trash can when I get home because it's now dry and crusty and it's really <laughs> less of a mess than you would really think it is. It's super easy. Isn't the toilet paper disposed? Doesn't it just biodegrade in a week or two? No, that's uh, the myth. <laughs> uh, people think it might be in a few months, but when I did the video with uh, people that are a part of the Leave No Trace organization, they actually, I remember them saying um, that it takes like five years for that toilet paper to break down. Huh. Wow. So that's why we see them all over <clears throat> the black country. Well, most people, I, I think, one aren't uh i think the packing it out thing is, is great because i don't believe that most people take the time to dig six inches down one and two above you know once you get above a certain elevation you're not going to dig six inches down True. especially and, and you know and you can't dig into snow that doesn't do any good so um you know unless you're you know observing all the rules of of that, you know, staying away from water and, and digging down far enough and your toilet paper, I was always taught, you know, growing up in the mountains here uh, at a young age to, to burn it. And that is absolutely not recommended right now because it's, you know, the whole forest is a, is a tinderbox. So right. yeah, it's simple. Ziploc bags weigh nothing, put it in there, zip it up, take it out. Yeah. Super simple. That's what I'll, I got interested in the CMC kind of late in life, so to speak. I had already climbed all the 14ers and climbed all the ranked 14ers. And I might have even had finished the Centennials before I ever got into the um, CMC. But I have loved taking the classes because I've learned so much. And it was, it's not intuitive to think, oh, well, I've already done all these climbs, but I still had a lot to learn. And so that, I got into it because um, I started doing the state high points and I knew I was going to need crevasse rescue skills and rope travel skills for doing Rainier. Uh, and then of course, Denali. And so that's when I took my first CMC class and there's actually a, a methodology today where you're needing to uh, work your way up and they have some what's called the basic mountaineering school classes or prerequisites before taking hams but I took hams as my first class um, I talked my way in <laughs> being allowed in but hams is high altitude mountaineering school and what a great, great class. And so I will just kind of go out on a limb and say for most people, it really doesn't matter where you are. There's probably still more that you can learn. And so how do you get involved in a HAMS class? Or I'm sure it's different. Are they doing it right now during COVID? Are they doing online classes? Or Well, things have changed. Um, but 
the norm is there's classes going on all the time and all over the state. So there's different um, groups, as we call them. There's the Pikes Peak group, which is ours down here in Colorado Springs. Denver has their own group. There's Boulder. So there's several groups or chapters around the state. There's some on the uh, one over on the Western Slope where you can plug in and then find the classes uh, that you want to take. So you can go to cmc.org and um, you can look at all the classes that are listed on there and the various groups and, and find out what is it that you need or want and, you know, figure out where you can uh, get involved to take some classes and learn the things you might not know. Especially if you want to keep going and do, you know, bigger and better things out there, um, you know, go up in your climbing skills. Most people will usually finish the 14ers. And then if you're like me, I didn't want to quit. <laughs> so I kept going and I'm still going today, still climbing. And so, yeah, I want to, I want to hear about the, the 50 high points. Like you, you have 61 trip reports on the 14ers.com if anyone wants to look all these up. So I was curious, like the one in Wisconsin, is it on a tower? Yeah, there's several of them that are out there that are on a tower. In huh. fact, uh, on my last trip, my finisher trip, my wife and I went to the top of Mount Davis in Pennsylvania. And uh, as I mentioned, I'm a filmmaker and do video production. So uh, I took the summit selfie of me and my wife, Deborah, with my drone. <laughs> <laughs> the cool looking shot. What, what's the weird some of the weirdest 50 high points isn't isn't the one like in the backyard of some lady's house in rhode island uh there's uh that's charles mound in illinois is some people's property huh. so they have it set up where they will publish the weekends that they're going to be home and that it's open and you have to go on that saturday and sunday of those like four weekends in the summer is when they allow you to come on their property and, and get it. So yeah, there are some of those. And uh, I got to tell you guys that uh, that state high point, I, I call it my uh, adult scavenger hunt. <laughs> and it has been, it was such an enjoyable adventure to go out to the back roads of our beautiful country and I went to places I never would have gone otherwise, like Mount Arvon in Michigan. You know, I would have never gone there if it wasn't for this state high point trip. So to travel across the, what they say, the, the UP, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's places all over that in this country that are fascinating and so beautiful. And I highly, highly recommend it. Did you road trip a lot of them? Like you connect them a lot together? Like a big road trip? Uh, both. Uh, yes and no. So some of them I did on business trips if I was going <laughs> someplace for work. And um, then one, like when I was going to see my parents going back home. So they live in Texas and I ended up uh, driving through Oklahoma and Arkansas down to Louisiana and then over to my parents' house and then came back up and got Guadalupe Peak in Texas. And that's part of the adventure of it is spreading it out over time and finding opportunities to get to the various places. 
And so my wife and I, we did three awesome road trips together. And uh, even one where we met up with another couple and, and uh, went up to um, Mackinac Island, if you know where that is. And um, met up with another couple and had a blast doing that. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of adventure to be have out there if you're going to go after all 50 high points. I think the same philosophy with the 14ers too. Like you discover the lake cities of the world and you, you know, mm-hmm. the ins and outs of Creed's restaurant, uh, Creed's restaurants or Leadville's Quincy steakhouses. And you know, every mountain pass and you talk to people down in Denver. And I, I talk to people down in Denver, like they know Buena Vista as well as I do, or they know 133 and Keebler pass and, and people don't unless they're exploring all, all the nooks and crannies of the state. So I can imagine to be the same with the 50 points. It is. It's like getting to know County Road 390, Chaffee <laughs> County Road 390 in Vicksburg and Winfrey. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And uh, explore those, uh, you know, old ghost towns. And uh, yeah, going to some of these places in the back country of America is, is getting to know places that you wouldn't otherwise. And uh, But I'll tell you, uh, some of the, a couple of the most enjoyable was to go to, say, Wyoming and Montana where to get those tight high points, you know, those were, we made them five day backpacks. And so it was 40 to 50 miles round trip to go get those. But some of the most enjoyable trips I've done is because you got to go so far into the backcountry that is totally remote. But I did it with the methodology of not rushing it. And that is something that I highly recommend is, taking the time to, you know, stop and smell the roses, so to speak. I always, you know, I'm someone who's, you know, decent, moderate speed. It's always interesting when you see the people who do so many peaks so fast, like Mm -hmm. how many they can do in a day. And it's phenomenal. And I'm amazed by them. And then sometimes I get to wondering, I'm like, did they enjoy it in the same way that I did? Just, I feel like they didn't take a lot of time to, I mean, my camera's always full of pictures, even if, uh, you know, most of them I just delete, (laughs) but, um, you know, same shot 10 times. Um, But, you know, I I think everyone enjoys it differently and that's cool. Um, But it's just, uh, it's just interesting to think about um, how fast some people can do these things and how different their experience is than what you or I might experience. Mm-hmm. I'll say when I was going after the 14ers, that was my main mentality. Go do it fast, get in and out and get back home because I got work to do. You know, Thankfully, I'm a freelance filmmaker and I can set my own schedule. And so as I go out today, um, I'm still leading a lot of people in the back country. And so if I go do capital, for example, I do a backpack in camp at the lake, go do the summit on the next day and then come back and spend a second night at the lake and then get up and hike out fresh in the morning. And that is such a wonderful way to do these harder, longer trips to where you're not just hammering your body, but you're actually taking the time to enjoy it. So I have a, I had a question going yeah. back to the, to the high pointing. And, and so, you know, 
you know, in mountaineering, there's there's some people follow a certain set of rules. You need a certain amount of elevation gain. You know, saddles have to, your mountain has to drop to be a peak, you know, that stuff. So when you get into the high points of the rest of the United States, when it's not so mountainous, where do you start? You know, you're not clearly, if you go, I think what the lowest point is, what, Britain Hill in Florida, it's like 300. So, so where do you start on that? What do you, what do you consider a climb a climb on, you know, the points outside of, you know, the mountainous states. So like the Britain Hill, where do you start in Florida uh, to where you feel like it is, is, is it a parking lot and you're walking to the top and you're like, good, I did it. Or is it, you know, I'm going to start 10 miles down the road on a trail because I'm going to make this into something that. The peak bagging idea, what is it you want to do? and then make it yours, but don't make it like you have to force somebody else to keep your rules too. So keep those expectations for yourself and not for others. That's kind of, I think, a, a good idea to get along <laughs> with everybody. But when it comes to the state high points, you don't have 3,000 feet for Britain Hill when the <laughs> summit is at 345 feet above sea level. So, yeah, if you wanted to say, I got to hike five miles to make it count, well, what are your rules? Make your own rules if that's what you want to do. But, um, yeah, the, the net gain I put in my trip report for Mount Sunflower in Kansas was a minus one foot when you step out of the car. <laughs> that's the elevation. So you lost, you lost some elevation. <laughs> you know, so which one – of the 50 high points, which one stood out to you as the most like spiritual experience? Denali, hands down. Hands down. Denali was um, one that I really had to earn. It was um, a lot of work in a number of ways. One, I had to learn a whole lot of new skills. And um, you'll learn some of those skills if you want to go do Rainier. And that is, um, you know, snow travel with crevasses. And so you got to do rope travel and learn how to extricate yourself out of a crevasse. But Denali, you've got to learn how to extricate yourself out of a crevasse with a sled. <laughs> it's daunting and there was a lot to think of and so um we we trained to learn those skills we went up to castle rock where um there's that really wonderful chris miller city park area and they have a big giant metal tower where um they do the um zip lines and and people get to do this kind of uh fun rock climbing skill, lowering, rappelling type thing on that tower. But I got permission to use it. And so we literally went up there and hung off of that high tower with our packs and with our sleds. And we all went through the training of learning how to get out of the system and how to climb the rope with your pack, with your sled and, and figure out how to do that skill. But I'll say that one of the reasons Denali was so hard for me was I, I trained for it twice. Mm -hmm. I um, trained to go in uh, 
2017. And uh, unfortunately, I had to pull out of it last minute for financial reasons. I had um, two car repair bills that came in right before the trip and wiped out almost all of the savings I had saved up. And um, on top of that, I had three jobs lined up that was gonna carry me before and then through the time I was gonna take off for a month to go do Denali in Alaska. And three jobs all at one time fell through. And all of this financial stuff hit me right before the trip. So I had to go to my partners and say, I am extremely sorry. I never thought I would be doing this, but I have to be an adult here, adult up and, and <laughs> basically say, I'm not going to do a recreational adventure on borrowed money. I'm not going to put it on the credit card. And so I pulled out and uh, then came back and trained through the winter of 2018-2019 again and uh, with new partners and then it happened. So you just did it last year? Last summer, yeah. And was that your last one of the 50? No, my, my uh, that was in the summer, June of 2019. I just finished um, about two weeks ago down in Florida. So my wife and I just did a big trip. Well, it was in September and it was perfect timing. We had just come out of the COVID stuff. And uh, what I mean by that is that the restrictions had kind of lifted and it was seeming like we were kind of getting back to normal. So my wife and I jumped in the car and we went and did the last remaining 10 that I had back East. Oh, wow. So you had a 10 high point trip that finished in Florida this year. Yep. Just finished. Huh? Yeah. It's an awesome adventure and uh, get to the end of that was very, very fulfilling. But uh, it was interesting. You ask about the spiritual nature there, Patrick, about uh, Denali. And um, I would say if you're interested, that is addressed in my 14ers.com trip report. There's two parts and I unpack that side. It's not only physical, not only mental, but it is spiritual. And that's one of the things that Steve Gladbach was famous about saying is that mountaineering encompasses all three of these. And uh, it sure did for me on Denali. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's uh, it's always a, a, an aspect that I ask people when they climb is, is you know, there's there's the physical aspect, there's the mental toughness, there's the, the challenges, but there's always that's you know that spirituality, you know, the senses tingling, so to speak, you know, mm -hmm. uh, while you're out there doing those things, and and that's trying to get people to pay attention to that, and, and it's I'm excited to read that part because I, I love hearing about. You know, I, literally had, I literally had two different occasions where I'm in my own little world in my own head because you're on a rope separated because of crevasses. And um, I had two times where I had complete breakdown, tear fest, cry fest. 
Oh yeah, there was some spiritual discussions going on <laughs> with God. I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to reach deep down in, in those, and um, there's there are those moments. You know, you you question things on the way up, like, man, what did I do? <laughs> Sometimes, but uh, you know, you it's always worth it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I can't tell you how many times after Denali, I'd be walking through the house and I would just yell out my loud, my wife would chuckle because I probably said it two dozen times. I did Denali. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't live that down and it didn't go away for a long time. The, the high. It, it can't. It never will. That's no small accomplishment. So, it, I mean, that's, that's incredible, Mike. Good. Yeah, there's a lot of training involved to do those kind of mountains. It mm -hmm. was uh, all through the winter, me and my partners, we went out um, multiple times. We each had where we picked our own outing of what we wanted to do. And um, so each one of us got an opportunity to pick our own. And we would go climb mountains and do winter campouts and winter bivvies and you know, test all the gear and all the equipment, but also the physical workout. And um, something that I will share with you that is for people that are going to do high elevation stuff. Um, one of my partners is a medical doctor and he sent me this video of a doctor that was a Denali field doctor and would be at 14,000 feet. And so he would do his summer stints up there. And he did a, a research project and came to find out that you know who was successful who got sick and who didn't and the end of his research he came to kind of a conclusion that somebody that has come to denali that has spent 10 or more nights at 10,000 feet or above in the three months prior they had like a very very low less than 20% would get AMS or mm. hay per haste. And it was the opposite. People that spent zero nights at 10,000 feet prior to trying to come and do Denali would 20% of the time they were the ones that didn't get it. In other words, like 80%, they would. Wow. So that's one of the keys that I came to learn from before we went is we're going to spend many nights above 10,000 feet. And so that's what we did. And we have, of course, the advantage living in Colorado, that's easy for us to do. So that was a lot of our training. So one of the things, um, like I'm fine with backpacking in the summer, all that. I do a bunch of day hiking, climbing peaks in the winter, but winter camping just seems a little intimidating and just very uncomfortable. Um, I don't sleep well in the tent in summer normally. <laughs> so uh, any hints on, uh, you know, any, any, anything that you could pass on for the whole uh, camping when you're in a snow situation? Sure. Good question. I um, grew up in South Texas. And so the idea of camping on snow was so foreign. I didn't think that was possible. And, I avoided it actually for the longest time. Uh, of course, all that changed in uh, living in Colorado and getting into mountaineering. And after 
you know, doing the 14ers, I didn't want to quit. And so I would climb year round and that meant doing a lot of this winter camping and having to learn how. And so it's um, a matter of getting your system dialed in. But here's the big idea. You have to have insulation between you and the snow. And that's not your sleeping bag. Your sleeping bag puts insulation on top of your body. But when you lay down on it, it compresses that sleeping bag down to a thin, you know, one millimeter pile of nylon and some feathers that are all smashed. <laughs> so it's not going to keep you warm. So you have to have something between you and the snow because there is no way you're going to be able to sleep on snow. In fact, uh, real quick, I did North Maroon um, in August one year, and we had um, weather that was clearing, and I knew from the forecast it was going to clear. So we didn't start, and we, we sat at the uh, Crater Lake for three hours, and I tried laying on the ground in August and was literally shaking, like hypothermic shaking, being on just dirt in August because it gets down to what 35 degrees at night in the middle of summer. So that's where I first learned, you know, you've got to get off the ground. And so you've probably seen those little, um, close cell phone pads from like Walmart and stuff, those little blue ones that are hard. That's your base layer. So you need something like that. And then a blow up, mattress which gives you comfort but that can also add some r value as well uh, if you get an x pad with down in it that can hold and retain some of your body heat like a down puffy and so that's your next layer and then you got to have the sleeping bag that is really rated for what you're going to be doing and that comes from trial and error so you can have a a summer sleeping bag that may or may not keep you warm enough in summer. And the only way you're going to know that is to get out there and, and do it even in the winter time. And I had a minus 20 degree bag for Denali and was golden. That was, that worked great. Nice. But one thing that I learned through the years too, is a lot of people associate with the more layers, the warmer I get, but that's not the way, you know, and you also alluded to that, Brett, was when you smush all those feathers, you're totally erasing the effectiveness of the down. So the more you put on and squish into your bag, you're not allowing that loft and the feathers to trap all that heat. So you're putting on all these coats and everything, and then you put your sleeping bag on, and you're actually working against yourself. Right. So that was one thing. I, it took me a little while to learn because I kept thinking, hey, if I put on all my layers, I'll be good. So what, how does the sleeping bag work? Your body heat has to transmit the heat from your body into those baffles of the sleeping bag. Same way with the down coat, your body heat emanates that warmth out of your body into those baffles. And then it's trapped in the baffles of the down. And so yeah, like you're saying, if you've got on all your layers, then your body heat may not make it into those baffles. But um, something that is a tech tip that is an absolute golden nugget 
And that is oftentimes you'll get in your sleeping bag and you'll be cold and it takes a long time for it to warm up because you got to transmit that heat from your body into those baffles. Sometimes you can't transmit enough heat depending on how cold it is outside and what your sleeping bag is rated at. So here's one of the golden nuggets that if you don't know this one, boil your water, put it in your Nalgene, put your Nalgene inside your sleeping bag, you've got a heater. And it keeps your water freezing in the tank. Absolutely. You got something to drink in the morning. I have snuggled with the Nalgene many a <laughs> night. <laughs> no, that's a good, that, that, that's gold tip for, for cold weather camping. And in fact, I've done two Nalgene's where I throw one down at my toes. Oh, okay, smart. Mm -hmm. yep. Of course, the down booties are the other thing that if you're having trouble falling asleep because your feet are cold, then I've slept many a night with down booties, and that's another gold nugget that if you don't know that one. Huh. Yeah, those are great. I am. I love my down booties. Uh, always sleep, you know, never sleep with socks anywhere but in a sleeping bag. Uh-huh. But that's where I always sleep with the hat on. And you have those extra pair of socks. So as a backpacker, you think, okay, well, I'll just save my clean socks and I'll sleep in those. And then the next day you pull them off and you put your dirty socks back on and that's you go on about your business. Uh -huh. so your, your clean socks are always your sleep socks. Yeah, so this is something, here's something that, um, another gold nugget that people need to know if they're gonna do stuff in uh, winter. Steve Gladbach taught me this from going out with him. We were in uh, South Colony Lakes one cold, snowy winter night. And um, he says, you have to take off all of your wet layers, everything, down to your underwear and put on dry. And so it's the only way you're going to get warm is if you get the wet stuff off and then put on dry and then put those wet layers say down by your feet so they can dry overnight from the heat in the sleeping bag. But you will find that you will instantly get warm as soon as you get out of wet, sweaty base layers and the like. Yeah. And the comfort level is off the chart when you get into clean clothes. You you know how that feels and you're like, oh man, <laughs> everything. And, 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 and a lot of people, I think, when you're camping and, and you're cold and you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to get in the sleeping bag. I just want to warm up. But yeah, I mean, take those extra few moments of, of suffering in the cold and you'll sleep a lot better and you'll mm -hmm. wake up and yeah, it's totally worth it. Mm -hmm. uh, another one is a um, thermos can be a, gosh, such a joy to have a hot drink or hot beverage or, I have a little uh, thermos type, but it's a wide mouth for uh, like soups and noodles. So I'll put top ramen in there or something like that. And so that's another one of those ways to go out in winter and have the stuff in your arsenal to make it enjoyable and survivable. Yeah, that's one of our tr tips is we do, a, we do lemon zinger tea with Gatorade powder. In a, in a thermos when we do winter stuff and it's you're right it's a delight to have that warm little sip mm -hmm. 13,000 feet mm -hmm. even if, I, if i'm 
starting from here, from here at home or starting in the backcountry, I will often boil my beverages that I'm going to be taking on the mountain and then stuff them in my insulators and in my pack so that they will stay warm, even hot, most of the day. Especially when it's down below zero or below zero, you almost have to so it doesn't get so cold where you don't want to drink it, but it's glorious to have it hot. I would like to kind of ask a question like, if you ran into someone on an elevator and they're like, uh, I've never done a 14er, it's October. I think we're going to go run up Elbert. And you had a minute to teach them as much as you could in a minute. What would that 60 seconds of advice be? Well, that's, I would probably just try to tell them there's a lot that you probably don't know and just warn them of the fact that accidents can and do happen in the backcountry. And if you're not prepared and you haven't learned what you don't know, then, you know, is it the wisest decision? And so I would just encourage them to get educated and, you know, if, if you need to take a class or just, I give my phone number out and info, just call me. I'll talk to you. And so I do that all the time. I just try to encourage people take the time. And if that's an hour phone call with me before you go, I'll tell you some of the stuff that's going to help you survive. And I'd rather do that than um, have another accident happen. Cause I will tell you, um, losing my buddy, Steve was the hardest, hardest thing I've gone through. One of the hardest things I've gone through in my life. After he passed away, I cried every day for 16 days. And I grew up, you know, with the dad that, you know, Britt, you're a man, you don't cry. So I didn't do that. So it really took it. It, it was a shock for me to find out how hard it was to lose my best climbing friend. And so, um, that's why I do a lot of what I do today is when Steve passed away, I came to realize how unselfish, unselfish he was. I came to realize how selfish I was. At the time I was pursuing my 14er goals climbing the 14ers and finishing the unranked 14ers and Steve was helping me. And I was so focused on me. It was all about me. And so Steve was the kind of person that would help others. And so today that's what I'm trying to become is less selfish, more selfless and helping others learn. I mean, Steve, you know, I never met Steve, but I read every word he wrote on the forum. Um, when I first got on there, he was someone you quickly realized knew what, you know, he knew his stuff and was teaching people. Maybe he didn't post on everything, but when he posted, it was gold. Yeah. Um, he was, 
Uh, he offered to meet my wife and I for Wetterhorn, which was our first class three, and we were nervous about it. Huh. And uh, his car broke down. Mm. And then I never, you know, never ended up meeting up with him after that. And it's, you know, it's something I've regretted that I never actually met Steve because he touched so many and he touched a lot of us. I mean, when when he passed away, I, I was really upset. I mean, I'd never met him, but just his foreign presence, you knew he was, you know, mm -hmm. he was someone who made a difference in a lot of people's lives. So, um, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Pass it on. I guess it's a self. I love the line about the selfless selfish versus selfless. And I think that's, that's one of the best tips you can give people actually. It seems like you're doing a great job of it. Your, the inspiration and your enthusiasm and your patience and your willing to educate everyone seems like you're channeling Gladback pretty well. <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for, for doing what you do out there because that does, it honors his legacy, but it's, uh, you know, it, it keeps it going that, you know, Colorado is, is an amazing place, a lot of amazing adventures. And it's up to us that are out here that know what, what we know to impart that on people that don't write. So um, that's it's awesome. And thank you for, for doing that. You are uh, really welcome. I will end with this. Um, I have this picture that I keep uh, here. And it was uh, I ironic thing. It was uh, how I ended a trip report when Steve and I went and climbed Crestone Needle together. And I had no idea what this would mean later, but it was how I ended the trip report with Steve for climbing Crestone Needle. And it was a scripture verse, Psalm 103. And it says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more but from everlasting to everlasting the lord's love is with those who fear him and then he passed away shortly after uh, end with that that's amazing that's a great way to